Hi there, I'm Danny Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Whether you're joining us for the first time or if you're a returning listener, thanks for downloading, subscribing, listening. For the new folks, in case you don't know, this podcast is where we have informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. That could be people who work directly in climate science. We've kind of expanded that over the years to also include people who who write about it and people who have uh, different perspectives on it and are involved with different initiatives. So we're sort of expanding that a bit. We still will talk with scientists, straight up scientists uh, here and there. Yeah, and here we're excited. I'm excited. We're excited to bring you this conversation with Paul Behrens. Paul is an assistant professor in environmental change at Leiden University. In 2020, he published this book called The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, Futures from the Frontiers of Climate Science, which describes the uh, humanity's possible futures in these paired chapters. There's a chapter that's pessimistic and then a chapter that's optimistic, and it kind of goes back and forth between those two. It's really good. I read it before the interview and really, really enjoyed that pairing because I think you know, he's obviously onto something there. The climate conversation shifts so often between these two, between a bit of hope, a bit of optimism, and then a bit of pessimism. We're all just, there's this pendulum that's kind of swinging back and forth. There's a little bit of background noise here and there. Overall, our uh, editor, Sean Williams Page, has tried to kind of take that out as best as possible. But, you know, you might hear a little bit of background noise. Okay, yeah, let's keep the intro nice and short. Let's go ahead. Let's quickly get into this conversation with Paul Behrens. Here we go. First, I want to say thanks for being here. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us uh, about your book and about the work that you've been doing so yeah I'm, I'm glad glad you're here sometimes i like to open you know first i, I thanks for being here again I, I already said that bit i really um I, we do want to talk about the book like i really enjoyed the book and um appreciate that it, that it must have been a, a huge amount of work it's sometimes i kind of sometimes like to ask people just what they've been working on lately so because obviously the book is something that that would have been finished a long time ago i, I imagine you're doing some of the um, you know, promotional stuff for it now, but what, what have you been up to kind of lately, like since, since the book, uh, project was kind of done in terms of the writing of it and things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So great, great question. Yeah. So it's, um, there was a, a pivot back to some research. Um, you know, when you write a book, they, then you sort of, uh, have less of an opportunity to do some research. And we had a, a paper come out a couple of weeks ago, um, three weeks ago now, uh, on food systems, uh, around the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, we looked at what would happen if you took the land saved uh, from a plant-based uh, shift, a uh, dietary shift, uh, and allowed that to revert to potential natural vegetation. Uh, and what we found there is you could basically double uh, the benefits of that plant-based shift uh, by you know, leaving that back to nature. And of course, this is like a mass, maximum opportunity, right? So, um, you know, that wouldn't happen everywhere. Uh, you'd need all sorts of uh, policies and support and, and, and a shifting of the subsidies that are there. I mean, to a large extent, a lot of money's there to allow this shift to happen if, if we wanted it to. Um, but it's a sort of, um, you know, a, an eye-opener, a raise the horizon to the opportunity that's actually there. We would save in high-income nations if high-income nations move towards plant-based diets because we wanted to focus on high-income nations because lower and middle-income nations don't necessarily have the plant-based um, 
proteins. Um, in high-income nations alone, you'd save the area an area the size of the EU in land. I mean, just wow. astonishing amounts of land around the world. Um, and that's because agric- animal agriculture takes up 80% of all uh, agricultural activities. Um, and so... That came out, and so there was a there was a bit of uh, interest in that, and doing uh, doing the um, the interviews and trying to get the message out because I think a lot of the work that we do, I work in a field called industrial ecology, and we can talk about that. But a lot of the work we do is very um, socially driven. It's it's very sort of you know well, how, how do we how do we fit on the planet <laughs> for the long term? You know, how do we make this work? <laughs> um, yeah. and, and what are the models we can do that, and what are the flaws in those models and the assumptions? Yeah. And with your uh, like conversion to nature, does it matter what kind of conversion back to nature that looks like, whether it's, you know, rewilding or forest or those kinds of things? Super, super question. Yeah. So we actually uh, used uh, potential natural vegetation maps. So these are maps which um, are the estimated antecedent uh, vegetation for human influence um, or at least recent clearing. Um, so not like way back when, uh, but, you know, recent clearing the last century or so. So what naturally would kind of grow if you just left yeah. it be? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And it's spatially explicit. So you actually have the type of vegetation in this particular grid cell for that. Thing. I don't know how much detail you want to go into in, the, in these sorts of things. Just stop me if it's a, but you, you, you kind of, um, you have a sort of vegetationally uh, explicit uh, estimate. Um, and, you know, the literature on this is quite interesting about the rewilding, you know, active versus passive, land sparing versus land sharing. Um, you know, active basically means you, you, you sort of bring in um, uh, animals, you bring in, you, you try and uh, regenerate uh, what you think uh, would have been uh, on that land. Passive is just basically, yeah, let nature do it. <laughs> nature's going to do what nature's going to do. Um, and then there's the sort of land sparing, which is sort of the idea of it here in terms of actually just leaving that land uh, to um, nature or to actively or passively rewild. And then there's land sharing, which is this idea where, you know, actually, you know, if we went to a plant-based diet, we'd have more land, but we could use that land uh, in conjunction with nature. So we could uh, cultivate uh, within natural systems. Uh, And so we're not sort of necessarily giving it all back over to nature. uh, And we're not all necessarily all stopping production of of food. Uh, We're doing both at the same time and doing it in sort of regenerative ways is the buzzword but um yeah um, the meta-analysis on this seems to suggest that overall once you take everything into account that uh, land sparing is better for biodiversity but um and, and the meta-analysis i read on this uh, seemed fairly convincing on it but I, I don't think it's a you know it's a scientific consensus yet yeah and it's more about the social interactions as well and all those yeah. uh, complicated things that humans yeah. introduce <laughs> great point yeah and the economic, yeah yeah. We've had the privilege to talk here to um, some Indigenous scientists and people who make documentaries about Indigenous scientists. And one of the themes that is coming out of that for me, or what I've learned from from that, is that a lot of those Indigenous practices for land stewardship would still be a pretty darn good idea, yeah. <laughs> which sounds consistent with what you're talking about in it. Um, contrary to um, kind of, I guess, popular perception. A lot of those indigenous practices are not just let's leave the land, you know, and to do its own thing. That there are controlled burns, there are controlled like let's decide when to cultivate certain things. You know, there are timings of when you harvest and timings of when you plant and, and things. So that 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 sounds broadly consistent with that idea. <laughs> Yeah, and I I think, you know, it comes down to a lot on the, you know, what is antecedent vegetation? You know, Mm -hmm. is it, it, um, you know, 
we've altered land so much through many different stages. You know, this idea of it, you know, untouched land uh, mm. in many areas doesn't really, you know, apply that well. At least we might not know particularly well. And, you know, certainly if you look at, uh, you know, Ruddiman's work, it's sort of thinking that the Anthropocene actually started with this large amount of land clearing uh, much earlier than, uh, you know, uh, than people think, you know, ten th- you know started the Holocene type 10,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, and then you're thinking, well, okay, land, land clearing 10,000 years ago, you know, it's, it's difficult to sort of map what the antecedent uh, vegetation would be even further back. And as you say, a lot of the systems actually require active inf- in, in influence to keep things going. Um, so, yeah, no, it's yeah, a yeah, yeah. really interesting topic. And um, I think that's one of the, more, the harder things to uh, communicate about food systems compared to energy systems, because the indigenous practices, the vegetation, all of these things, the diets, these are so, so much more different at local scales where within it with energy systems you basically like yeah yeah i mean there's there's complex complexities but it's mostly like yeah solar wind uh storage <laughs> extra for that last 20 percent. but it's it, it, you know and, and I, you can show this just through the physical flows whereas food, mm. with food it's, it's much more personal much more situational um there are those aspects in energy as well but with food it's on another another different level yeah it's nice to have a fairly easy answer, I guess, in some things. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes me. Then that's what what makes me worry is, um, you know, if you're seeing like a state, you know, if you're trying to uh, measure the benefits of something, it's far easier to choose something that's homogenous and scales quickly uh, than something that's heterogeneous and you can assess in multiple different ways in multiple different areas for multiple different outcomes, mm. um, and. So the ways in which sort of policies are often designed is is for, you know, that copy pasting, and yeah, it's a real problem when it comes to uh, land use and land policy. Depending on the state and depending on how devolved those decision making processes are. Right. Yeah. Like it. It's. I think if I hear you correctly, you're saying that it's relatively easier to say yes, wind and solar generally a good idea wherever you can put it, but you know what you do with with land in terms of what you grow there and how you cultivate it that's going to vary quite a lot depending on where you are in a country or what kind of um, ecosystem you're dealing with so that you do need a more regional um, like you said kind of um, heterogeneous kind of approach which is different from from place to place yeah 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 Yeah. where you said that uh, was a paper that came out recently where where does that where does that appear where can people see that Oh, um, it's in uh, Nature Food. Um, I can share the uh, the share link. Um, sure, yeah, yeah. I only heard about that um, journal a couple of days ago. I didn't know it existed. Is it is it pretty new? <laughs> that particular Nature uh, one? I don't know. I mean, Nature brought out a whole a whole lot of these uh, sort of um, family journals. Um, I think yeah. Nature Food is uh, two years old now. So okay. yeah, yeah. yeah, fairly new. I happened to uh, listen to this lecture by Andrew Knight. And he mentioned some studies in, um, I think he's, I think he's a, uh, a veterinary science person. He gave a, a Darwin College lecture recently, and he asked the question, should dogs and cats go on a vegan diet? And he summarized the uh, research that was kind of out there. And I, I wasn't expecting to be necessarily swayed one way or the other, but um, the, the case that he laid out, as far as people in his field can tell, um, if you design the vegan food carefully, it is just as nutritious for dogs and cats. Uh, they still, you know, they get all the nutrients they need as long as the food is designed carefully. And this one is hard to quantify, but as far as 
they can tell using behaviors like tail wagging for dogs or sniffing food as like a negative indicator. Dogs don't sniff food if they're into it. They just go ahead and eat it, right? So if they're sniffing the food, that's not a, not a good sign. They can use indicators like that, which are, of course, imperfect, and you, you could criticize this sort of thing. But as far as they can tell, dogs and cats don't enjoy the vegan food any less. They seem to be just as oh, into wow. it and okay with it as the regular meat-based food. Yeah. Did you say that there are, um, there are, uh, I don't have a pet and I, I never ever really had a dog. Do, are, they, are they available, uh, these uh, substitutes yet, uh, in a healthy way? Because I know you can get all sorts of like um, plant-based substitutes for animals, uh, for pets. But uh, is there like a diet that you can follow, follow as, a, as a pet owner, as a dog and cat owner? I think, yeah, he was kind of saying that that, that is still emerging. There are companies right. out there that are producing yeah. this kind of, you know, a high quality vegan food alternatives for pets that you need need to do some some research and you need to check and make sure the company is doing things like nutrition trials like making sure that the animals are actually getting the appropriate nutrition um yeah i should post a link to that as well because it was a really interesting i'm not going to try to summarize the whole thing here but it was a really interesting point where uh to, to connect to what you were just saying so he went through all of the evidence that we have right now that the animals are okay with in terms of their their health and in terms of their apparent enjoyment um and their health benefits also it actually doesn't seem to be worse for them to be on a vegan diet health-wise in fact they even Mm. seem to have slightly better health outcomes Mm. um a lot of it's not super statistically significant there's not like a super clear difference Mm. Mm. um you know between the two diets which is maybe interesting in itself, right? Like the fact that there isn't a big difference between them means that uh, maybe it doesn't, in some ways, maybe we could shift without changing, without affecting uh, their their health or their, um, you know, well-being. Um, but it does have a big savings in terms of uh, climate change, right? Reducing emissions yeah. by doing exactly what you're, you're talking about. You're producing, you're creating less meat, you're, um, using um, i don't know i feel like i'm saying these things in a slightly strange way but you know you're producing less meat uh, for that kind of animal food uh, and overall that's going to have a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions because there's a lot of emissions associated with cultivating meat right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And not just the food but the, not just the direct f- um, emissions through the um what we call enteric fermentation so there's very few animals ruminants uh, are the only animals that uh, uh, can digest uh, grass um the way they do in the in with these um stomachs and it produces a lot of um a lot of methane, but we also yeah. produce an awful lot of uh, 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 cereals uh, for animals. For, and, you know, 80% of the soy that's uh, grown in deforested Amazonic regions is for cattle, you know. So wow. Wow. it's really quite large. Um, and this point on, uh, you know, this balance of the diets, I mean, so we looked at uh, plant-based diets, um, mm-hmm. and this doesn't mean necessarily cutting out all meat and right. dairy. Um, you know, uh, I, I I do for you know obviously every it, it, the extra helps um, but one of the me- key messages we wanted to say was like this is the eat Lancet diet which is a, a diet for health and a diet for the planet mm-hmm. and, you know under that diet if you take these sort of average and the ranges and as you say there are ranges of what's healthy um, you can go right down to zero grams of meat or about twenty grams a day so it's sort of a very small portion of steak a week so it's, you're really going to, towards the situation where it's just a treat every now and then. You know, that's people often like, well, what does a plant-based diet really mean? And I sort of say, well, yeah, it's it's sort of a red meat as a real treat, um, and you know, a little bit more of the dairy than say, you know, just a treat. You know, maybe mm-hmm. 
three times a week or something like this. So um, that's what it kind of looks like in order to make that work. And of course, every extra bit helps. If you cut it out completely, that helps even more. Uh, but even by doing that, you know, you've, you've shut down the, the sort of the majority of the impacts that you're having, which are, which are huge. I mean, you know, having a vegetarian and then potentially, you know, moving to a vegan diet, um, you know, compares to... Um, you know, an electric vehicle rather than a petrol one, and uh, mm. going even further, perhaps even going car-free. It's somewhere it's somewhere between EV and car-free. Uh, so it's a big yeah. deal. Um, and that doesn't actually take into account, as I say, the upstream land use, which, you know, could double the effect if you were able to harness it. Mm. Oh, that's really, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I've, I've got something I wanted to share on that, but I wanted to check. Ella, were you going to say something a second ago? I felt like, did you get cut off or...? The moment has passed. I was oh, going to <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I was just um, <laughs> thinking about, uh, I guess, dog food and animal food actually uses all the bits of animals that most humans don't want to eat. Hmm. I wonder if uh, that was covered in that lecture. I, I think so. I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not going to claim to be an expert and able to summarize the whole thing after just watching the one lecture. But yes, I think it was. I think it was, if I remember right. Uh, there was a lot of information in there. It was actually... But, and, and that's an interesting, I think that's a really interesting point because um, it turns out that, you know, we think about waste, we sometimes double count waste over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So you go, oh, well, it's not so bad because it's waste anyway. Well, we also use that uh, animal waste. Uh, we can also use it uh, as manure. We can. Uh, we don't feed it back to the, um, uh, sorry, not manure, um, a fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Um, we use the dry blood and things like this. So it's, it's sort of like... You know, we've got this volume of waste. This this waste is hopefully minimal over time, and then we can't keep counting it over and over again. Do you know what I mean? Like it's the same with um, biofuels. You know, it's like oh, we'll just make biofuels out of waste, and you think, well, actually, you know, some of that waste, wood chippings and things like this, are used in other ways. You know, so um, one system's well, waste is another's feedstock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm, well said. <laughs> Yeah. I wanted to share, this is just a little, not not really an anecdote, but something I noticed. So I, had, I spent some time in the States over the past couple of months and then, you know, came back here to the UK where, where I live. And uh, I was mostly in the Southern US for, for, uh, for that time. And one of the big things that I noticed was that it is so much easier to eat veggie or vegan here in the UK than it is in the Southern US, for example. Mm. Uh, here in the UK, there are options. You know, you can go to the grocery store. There's loads of corn stuff. There's loads of other, you know, alternative meat alternative just all over the place. So mm-hmm. actually, it's pretty straightforward to to do it. Loads of you know dairy alternatives for uh, milk and things. There's a whole like you know, pretty huge section in my local Morrison's here. Just you know, uh, mm-hmm. oat milk and soy milk and rice milk and whatever whatever else you want. Um, but in the southern US. If you're not eating meat, I don't know. Like it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. they're, they're, the options aren't just kind of readily there, available for you. Um, yeah. And it has me thinking about how uh, how important that is for if we're if we're imagining even enabling people, like letting people have the option to shift towards uh, away from meat into more veggie and vegan diets. Um, you know, if we don't have that stuff in the supermarkets. It's going to be hard for people to actually do that. Yeah. And well, that, that's a good way. Of that that's a that's a um, you know virtuous cycle. And this is one of the reasons why I think when I, when I think of individual actions you can take, and which individual actions um, have the tightest sort of um, coupling to systems, um, I do think dietary change is one of those. Uh, because you know, if it's a difficulty and you're an early adopter, you really open up the space for other people um, to. Um, 
uh, adopt those diets in the future when the system responds, when people respond, uh, in supermarkets responds, restaurants mm. respond. Yeah. And certainly there's been a sort of, as you say, total revolution. Uh, I'd say mostly in Northern Europe. I mean, if you go to France, it's still difficult here and there. Impossible. Although, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I have seen, even in France, I've seen um, aisles of, um, of uh, vegetarian, you know, uh, substitutes uh, for the first time, mm. uh, you know. And um, Yeah, I went to Paris in October and it was the first time I've been, you know, maybe every two years-ish because I don't fly. I always have to go through Paris to go anywhere on a train. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, the first time I'd been in years where I actually had some kind of vegan option yeah. and there was like a vegan restaurant and I know it's it's hard but it is easier and I know it's the same thing in the UK I mean I went vegan 10 years ago and the difference between then and now being able to feed yourself easily it's mm. it is like you say it's, mm. it's been a revolution <laughs> i was just going to say the research on this is um that uh, you know the more you give those options to meat eaters the more meat eaters, eaters enjoy it because it's um it's a it's an opportunity you know i think we sort of like we frame it as abstinence as sacrifice um mm. whereas really it is going to hopefully I, I strongly see it happening already when you look at what's happening on the shelves and in the restaurants um opportunities you know you go to a restaurant now in the in the netherlands for example and there's five or six uh, vegetarian options they all look yeah delicious. you're like oh well what should you choose and then you know and so it's that systems thing where it's that feedback i, I think that those those first few steps though as you say dan you know in the, in the southern states is is difficult you know and, and, and you know when you first start off uh, or when a country first starts off uh, having this uh, shift it's 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 hard yeah absolutely and there's huge differences even within the states for example like um i did my phd out in colorado in fort collins and there were a couple really lovely vegan restaurants um one, I don't know if it's still around, but one, it's called Tasty Harmony. It was the first like straight up vegan restaurant that I went to and everything was delicious because they really put a lot of care into you know, making these dishes interesting and tasty. Um, and that, that was one of the first experiences I had of like, oh, this can be really nice. This can, mm. this doesn't have to be, like you said, it's not, it doesn't have to be uh, depriving myself of something or, mm. or you know, abstinence. Mm. It's like, no, no, you can have, you know, very nice alternatives to what you're used to eating. It's, it can be great. Because we don't, we don't have, um, you know, we eat a, a lot of, a lot of us eat a very sort of narrow plant-based diet. You know, when you actually look at the varieties of food that we're, we're eating, it's quite narrow. And that narrowness is partly because, you know, what the supermarket stock, but also what the farmers are growing. And, you know, and, and so when you're getting away from, they say, the four staple cereals and, you know, the handful of vegetables that you sort of normally eat, mm. you're looking at something, you know, maybe looking at heirloom varieties and things like that. And you know it's 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 nice. It's exciting, and you know the research. Um, typically, there's a there's a large amount of research on this in terms of um, tipping points of um, behaviours uh, in society, and it finds that uh, basically between you know if you have a committed minority of between forty uh, fifteen and forty percent, it's quite a wide margin. The middle is around twenty five percent. Then you can flip the entire system, so the entire system changes. And so, you know, if you think about things like um, smoking, uh, you know, uh, gay marriage, even a minority, a committed minority, uh, can flip uh, the majority uh, take. And that doesn't mean like, you know, getting rid of uh, meat overnight, but it does mean that rapid acceleration that we expect, uh, that we've seen in uh, renewables, for example, that you can see in other tipping points in society, uh, social attitudes, and things. So, I, I think you know. You, we'll probably be taken quite a bit by surprise about how, how fast this can accelerate. Um, I don't want to be too uh, uh, bullish on this, but um, certainly, um, 
things are changing very, very quickly, both on the production and the consumption side and on the policy side. Wow, yeah. And I know we're talking about food specifically, but that feels like it has parallels with solutions, any climate change related solutions and just a general awareness of yeah. you know, climate change as, as a problem. That That's actually a pretty hopeful idea that a committed minority could uh, make enough noise and raise enough awareness to enact uh, a yeah. change that ultimately could happen pretty pretty quickly. Well, um, um, the, the other research on that, if you want to buy it, so that's the... Um, you know, uh, the committed minority, so that's in terms of sort of um, behavior, uh, behavioral attitudes, habitual things. Um, mm. if there, there is also some research, it's, 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 it's a bit of controversial recently, there's been some arguments back and forth, but um, the Erica Chenoweth uh, work, which you may have heard of, uh, of the 3.5%, uh, so some social uh, scientists and, and historians looked at, they looked at change over time. And they looked at what it took within that society to have a revolution, to civil rights, these sorts of things. And they counted up how many people were on the streets in active sort of protest. And then they found that uh, over time that uh, it was never the case that you needed any more than 3.5% of people out on the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was for violent and nonviolent actions. Uh, and then they found that uh, nonviolent actions was, was even lower, it was something like 1.7. I'd have to double check that. Mm-hmm. Um, this has come into to a little bit of uh, criticism um, in, in, in by others. Um, but certainly, if you're talking about like activism on the streets and marches, it's it's lower than that. That for the 15, uh, 15 to forty percent mark, it's much lower than that. You know, you really mm-hmm. can shift conversations, uh, open over to and windows up, and that's why. You know, in the book, I just think that the activism, the things that we don't really measure as, as scientists, uh, is, is having some of the largest impacts in changing the entire system. Yeah, I read a book called, I think it's called This Is an Uprising. Um, mm. And it's making a similar sort of point, although it's explicitly about uh, the nonviolent uh, kind of mm. direct action type of activism, mm. um, looking at various different uh, moments in history where that sort of societal pressure that is manifested in you know demonstrations or sit-ins or Mm lock-ons or all of those kind of things have catalyzed that kind of change you know whether it's the civil rights movement in Mm -hmm. uh, the 60s or you know a various different other other examples across the world and yeah it's a similar sort of point it's it doesn't have to be everyone out on the streets Mm -hmm. Um, it, it just has to be enough people to make a vocal enough point that everyone goes hmm actually maybe they've got a point maybe we will start to demand that change from our leaders and make those changes in our own lives Mm. yeah it's really it is a fascinating subject yeah and I think that's why I think that's why it's been there's a lot of hope there and I think it's been incredibly successful and done incredibly well i'm i'm not a, um, an activist expert uh, so you know i can't speak to you know what works and what doesn't work um in a sense but I, you can definitely see that the sort of uh, broad uh, tent uh, of extinction rebellion uh, sunrise movements the way in which they try to make sure that everybody can have a role and they're not too um you know, cliquey or, or, or elitist, you know, there's lots of different people from different walks of life. And, you know, there, there are critiques out there, of course, of all movements, but I just think overwhelmingly beneficial, like it's just made such a big difference. And I know the those movements at the moment are going through a sort of um, a consolidation phase of thinking about where to go next. And um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that, ang- that that side of things develops in the coming years. Definitely. Well, speaking of hope, let's talk about your book. The The reason that I picked up on the word hope is that, you know, throughout the book, you use this really nice device. I hadn't seen it done this way before, and I, th- I thought this was, this was great, really creative, where you would have a chapter on the pessimistic view of the future. Um, and you would then have a chapter on, well, here's a hopeful view of the future, and you would have them right next to each other, you know, grouped together by topic throughout the whole book. And one of the ways you kind of led into this was talking about sitting around at the dinner table. I, I really related to this example where you said, uh, you're sitting at the dinner, dinner table, people start talking about climate change, people ta- start talking about um, some of these large-scale issues that we're talking about f- food and well just climate change is, is, is enough you know these <laughs> catas- catastrophic issues but yeah you're sitting around at the dinner table and you you can kind of listen to the conversation progress down you know very familiar routes and it, it often will end up careening into a fairly hopeless place and then someone will try to pull it out of that fairly hopeless place by offering some counterexamples and that uh, there's this back and forth. The conversation mm-hmm. just goes back and forth between hope and pessimism, uh, hope and pessimism. And I think that's probably what a lot of people experience internally, right? As we're just going back and forth between the two, you, you can take either view and it's very easy to find yourself hopping back and forth between them. And that's one of the things that's kind of exhausting about it too, right? You, mm-hmm. you wake up and if you look at the, the news, like you can probably find articles that give you a little bit of hope. You can probably find articles that make you feel dis- despair. And uh, the, one of the things I really related to was you talked about sitting at the dinner table, listening to that conversation, and you almost don't want to get involved. You're like, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, you, do I have the energy to weigh in on this and to weigh in on the back and forth right now? How much, now? Time, how much time do I have? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, time and just um, emotional you know, you don't want to come off as the the, the 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 source on it either. I mean, you know, you don't want to be like, oh, it's like this, you know, um, in these conversations. You know, it's difficult. Yeah. Especially right. when there's so much nuance to every single argument. And yeah. there's ways of, I mean, I don't know if you're the same, but I certainly feel like a glass half full person some days. And then, you know, the next day I'll be a very glass half empty kind of person. And it, oh, yeah. ultimately it, it's never going to be a, a constant thing. It's It can be very fluid. That's right. <laughs> that's, yeah. why, that's why so there's this there's a concern at the moment i think about doomism and this mm-hmm. i don't know if seen this as sort of a sort of a, a general concern i i you know all we can have is our own takes on this because i don't in the literature we're not it's not quite there yet but i think people we move back and forth i don't think we were static you know a static uh, at least we should be open-minded enough to have a, a non-static uh, view of this and you know certainly a lot of the people i've talked to uh, spoken to a lot of the, my students for example um to some extent that level of sheer alarm and panic is something that pushes them to make the fundamental choices that they want to mm-hmm. make in their lives and to, to some extent that's actually sort of necessary to actually drive the rest of the action um, so yeah, I think it's a real struggle because I don't want to, and I, like, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, all of us as scientists, when you, you know, when you're reading the papers and it's a pretty miserable job having to sort of keep up with the literature to be honest. Yeah. Um, and you're just thinking like, ah, oh, this is no, 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 no. Yeah, this is good. And you know, for then us to turn around as communicators and say, well, nobody else can have that emotion, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's, I struggle with it. I do see how the disabling nature of the messaging is, 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 is damaging. Uh, 
think that's also one of the reasons why I wrote the book in the way that I did, was to have the acceptance of that pessimism, the acceptance of what the implications are, the acceptance of things are going to get worse, even in the best case scenarios for a couple of decades still. But the, 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 the everything still matters and the hope is still there. I think the IPCC did put it wonderfully when they said every action matters, you know, every degree matters. I, so I think that's the kind of messaging that we want to do. And as more and more people come into being concerned, we're going to get this ballooning of the same emotions that scientists have been going through for decades. Mm. You know, scientists older than us, you know, scientists that have um, been working, you know, for their entire lives and they're now retiring or... Um, have gone through. And we know that the number of people going through these emotions is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think then it's our job to help people move through that process, you know, I mean, uh, with the facts. I mean, probably not as uh, counsellors, but as, through, uh, you know, with the facts, through to a position where they can they feel like they have the ability to take action, they feel empowered to take action. Um, and as, as this sort of pool of people who are going to get really, really concerned and going to realise where things are at, um, it's, going to get, um, it, it's going to get even more important that we sort this out, the way in which we talk about these things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm also thinking about how nicely... So your, your book couples really nicely with Catherine Hayhoe's new book as well, which she's doing a... a it, it's different, but she's doing a similar kind of project of saying... How do we uh, encourage that kind of hopeful perspective uh, while accepting and not dismissing the kind of grim reality of it, like mm-hmm. the seriousness of the challenges we're facing? But mm-hmm. you don't want to stop there. You don't want to stop with the pessim- You don't want to stop at pessimism and be- feeling defeated and feeling like mm-hmm. there's no hope, because um, that's that's kind of just as useless as denying climate change yeah, <laughs> altogether. Yeah. Like just yeah. just kind of shrugging, going and going, oh well. Um, that's also that's not helpful. <laughs> that doesn't. Yeah, and, yeah, and like, it's simultaneously true that it is simultaneously true that we're in an awful lot of trouble, and yet mm-hmm. we have you know the vast majority of the social and technical solutions. I mean, it's simultaneously true. It's simultaneously true um, that we have seen uh, massive improvements in lifespan, uh, in uh, food insecurity, uh, and it's also simultaneously true that recently we've seen food insecurity increasing uh, and that we could have significant impacts on uh, on lifespan and human health and welfare. And, you know, so all of these things are simultaneously true at the same stage. Um, so, yeah, it's about um, activating with the pessimism uh, and then engaging um, with, um, in, you know, enthusiastic um, feelings of empowerment with the hope, I think. Yeah. 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 And I, by the way, I loved, uh, I loved uh, Catherine Hayo's book too. It's, uh, yeah, really, um, yeah, so it's really well written. Yeah. Yeah. I like to say it concisely sometimes as, well, look, it can always be worse. So, <laughs> you know, anything we do to make it less <laughs> bad <laughs> is <Yeah>. helpful because <laughs> we can always think about a possibly even worse scenario. Yeah. And all of those things are things that we know we need to do anyway, you yeah. know, and, and we know they would have so much better impacts on the rest of life. I mean, this is the one thing that I tried to do. This is one of the other reasons why the book takes the shape it does is because we have an emissions gap. You know, the UN releases emission gap reports every year. Um, But we also have a vision gap, you know, because it's not a utopian vision of hope, but it is a a vision of where you've got cleaner air, cleaner water, lower noise, uh, lower antimicrobial resistance. You've got, you know, better social ties, better, you know, 
there is a vision out there. When you go from the pessimism to the hope, you can see how much there is to be gained across all of society, not just addressing you know, climate change, for example. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why the book takes the shape it does as well, is that you, know, you set out this stall and then you see the difference and you see how, it, how, how hopeful that situation would be. It's not a utopia. The world will still really struggle. We're still going to have really large migrations. We're going to have sea level rise for, for centuries, but we can, we can really improve the lot of human uh, welfare, uh, even still with that. Yeah. Oops, yeah. We, uh, we didn't just tackle climate change. We also solved a whole yeah. bunch of other problems. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're at it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of interested in the process of how you wrote the book. I really enjoyed reading it. I think your writing is very nice and very clear. And um, I felt like I was able to kind of get, get the essence of it pretty quickly from your, your clear writing. And one of the challenges that I imagine that you ran into, and uh, obviously you, you have a broad uh, base of expertise. You've studied a lot of different things. But uh, sometimes we, we, like scientists, are sometimes criticized when we try to weigh in as experts on too wide of a set of things, on too many possibly possibly different things. So I was really curious about um, how did you ensure that your chapters, like on you know economics and all the various things, how did you ensure that they were um, really grounded in the kind of up-to-date thinking in those various sub subfields that maybe lied a little bit outside of your direct expertise? Because that that's got to be a huge challenge in writing a kind of uh, book that's intended to have a wide out a wide reach, a wide audience like this one. Can can you yeah. speak to that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so. With the, the economics ones, are an interesting example. So um, w- with some fields, the consensus is pretty straightforward, you know. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the energy chapters, you know, the consent, yeah, okay, I've been working on energy a long time as well, so, it, you know, it's, it's not, it was a lot easier. But, you know, the consensus is pretty much there, you know, the, in, in terms of the amount of renewable flows that we have, uh, the technologies we have, it's electrify everything, uh, produce it with wind and solar, and then there's going to be 20 to 30% left over that's going to be difficult to electrify. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to have to maybe use hydrogen and other things. But really, you know, we need to make it to that 70% and be, you know, researching on the rest. So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to be clear about what the what the remainder will be. You know, it could be... I think it's called that deep, deep decarbonization, I think you did. Yeah, deep, deep yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, with food, you know, every large-scale study out there says we need a great food transition. We need three things. We need a reduction uh, in um, meeting, especially, but a rapid dietary change. We need a, a rapid reduction in, in food loss. And to some extent, we need some increase in production, but the opportunities are much lower than the other two, especially when we're looking at climate impacts on food systems. You know, with economics, yeah, you know, like, it's it's... You know, even economists, I think, struggle mm-hmm. to, to think about the economy. Uh, and, and especially when it comes to political economy, that's why in the economics chapter I was very careful to say, you know, whilst we can be a little bit clearer about uh, energy and food and the direction that's going, it's really so hard, so so much harder. And all we can do is really point to some general trends. And to try and keep up to date uh, with that is really just reading a lot of uh, books. In economics, people 
tend to write a, a lot of uh, books that explain uh, things pretty well. Um, I do work in a bit of economics myself, um, although not as much as other fields. So um, we work with input-output models, which are basically built out of the systems of national accounting uh, that uh, countries actually produce, uh, and these are large-scale economic models. Hmm. Um, so, um, and of course, you know, asking uh, friends and colleagues who work in these fields because one of the interesting things about industrial ecology is you work in all of the different aspects in, in which societies impacts environments and the environment impacts society. And to some extent that can be very broad, but there's always a colleague who specializes in a certain area, hmm. you know, so an, a, somebody who works with the same models that I do, but does um, say um, carbon border adjustment mechanism analysis, like how do you levy tariffs on carbon that's coming into a region that has a carbon tax? So hmm. there's always somebody uh, around me who can uh, can read over things and, and help. And, and of course then, you know, you can still make errors, you know, and I'm not saying that uh, the errors are the people who helped me but um they're all mine um but um but th- 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 that can be very helpful yeah so you you need you have a professional network that you're tapping into and an expertise network that you're tapping into and yeah and that, that's really interesting that speaks to, to almost a kind of community element to science and to you know put a big project like this is drawing on on those resources yeah i was wondering if you had to i guess there's a difficulty with framing things a lot of the time and like Danny I also really like the the way you've gone through that uh, kind of positive negative sort of it's mm. it's not a false dichotomy it's, there's just so much nuance to all of these debates did you have to think hard about framing different elements and I mean you've spoken already a bit about the kind of the difficulties with economics which is of course so laden with politics and uh, prior value and our societal expectations based on you know so many different things but um, yeah was there a a challenge in framing each chapter or particular parts? Yeah it was it was it was a real challenge you have to do your best to filter the information at the sort of the highest level you know what are the major what are the major things that we're looking at here and and so for example with the you know when i say the great food transition of course underneath that there's all these other things that we can talk about and there's lots of uh, contested um, attitudes and as i try to get into those more contested attitudes i try to introduce more caveats you know so it, those, those three main things are the headline things will move through each of those things and you know to some extent this comes from you know the years in education teaching students from lots of different backgrounds and you're trying to synthesize the information for them, uh, synthesize uh, what we know about the situation, what we concretely know, uh, the, the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns, you know. Um, and so there's there's a bit of that now. And then mapping over all of that is the, yeah, as you say, the framing. So I want to be honest with the reader. I don't want to hold back. But at the same stage, I don't want to be disempowering um, or, you know, um, too negative and I think that's one of the hardest things of the book and you know as, as cutting lines putting lines back in all the time to try and get that balance right um, because as I, as I say in the first chapter you know you don't want to be um, uh, too reassuring because you know you need to be honest with people and I think people want somebody to be honest with them um, and you don't want to be uh, you know too negative because humans have done remarkable things in you know we've done incredible things as a civilization in technology in society so you don't want to be too dismissive of that either um, so that framing yeah real real challenge I think one of the hardest things I don't think I knew what I was getting myself into when I thought about the structure for the book and basically what happened with the structure of the book was I was reading a lot of popular science and 
I was reading a lot of books where 90% of the, of the book uh, was quite negative. And at the end, there would be some sort of technologies drawn out of somewhere or some sort of <laughs> tokenistic hope. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it's, it's this sort of inflection of hope at the end. Um, and, you know, I just think, well, we need to split that apart. And then I, and then I was reading, you know, very optimistic books, you know, like uh, Factfulness. And um, there was uh, Stephen Pinker's books, which I, I had a bit of problem with. Uh, but there are hopeful books out there in terms of technology. And they're quite exciting and they're quite amazing. And so I just wanted to really commit to both of those perspectives and actually give them their airing, you know, give them their, wow. give them their voice. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really innovative approach and something that we actually need because they get you get that balance in a way that isn't, just kind of arbitrarily throwing in your oh yeah but it will be okay because we've got this uh, <laughs> and yeah I, I was wondering if you you must have learned a huge amount yeah 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 it was so I mean when it's definitely not a book I could uh, re- rewrite even it's everything I knew up to that point <laughs> yeah. all the things I've ever taught all the things I've ever taught like like, i couldn't just be like uh oh i've got a new book out you know no it'll take me another 10 years to gather the uh the knowledge to to, to do it again (laughs) but um but yeah a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of reading and 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 to partly you know um i I wanted to to also explore this for myself you know we're talking about this sort of balance and things and what we go through internally and partly it is an effort for to help others sort this all out, figure this all out in their heads in the way that I was at the, at the time as well. And, and so looking into the inf- information and looking into the sort of the contested nature of some of the statements that you see in the popular science literature. I mean, you know, a really good, really good one, for example, is um, increases in wages in, 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 in around the world, you know, increases in incomes. And, um, you know, if you start looking into that, there's all sorts of nuances around the data. So I had to be very careful about that. You know, it's sort of digging into those sorts of different arguments out there as well and seeing how robust they are. And not trying to get sort of uh, too starry-eyed over the next great technological thing. You know, I would try not to do that because although a lot of those things are possible if we choose to do them, we've, as I say, we've already got a lot of the solutions we have already today to do the mitigation. We have a lot of the solutions we could do the ad- adaptation of, of to climate change. And so, you know, what does it look like rather than just assuming that something that's massive is going to scale like direct air capture or anything like that? Although that is obviously in there as well because we're in a situation where, you know, overshoot is, is, is all but guaranteed on 1.5 degrees um, and... Um, those overshoots are so scary that, you know, in the future, way down the road, uh, we may need to be considering it. But um, that was kind of the attitude I took. It's a really, yeah, it's a really ambitious project. And I'm, I'm really impressed. And yeah, this this might sound like a weird question, but I'm kind of wondering, like, where where do you, where's your engine for this kind of striking that balance between pessimism and optimism? What's, you know, what, what do you feel like is something that's kind of pushing you forward? Like, I really want to do this project. I really want to write this book. You know, where, where's that coming from? That's too big of a question, really. But <laughs> I, I am curious about about that. Because I think it's so it's so easy to get just weighed down by it, by the whole scope of the problem and the enormity of the problem. It's way too, it's way too easy to get pessimistic about it and, um, just, and, and, and fall into a kind of hole about it. And it's also kind of way too easy in some respects to, latch onto that the optimistic perspective and be a little bit too um blase i guess about the seriousness of the problem so yeah can you speak to that um yeah so part of the driver is what would i like to read what would i have liked Mm. to know i always thought about that in education you know how would i have liked to be 
taught how to learn, for example, like how would I have, how would I have loved to have enjoyed this course or that course? You know, what would have been what would I have loved to know before I started it? So there, there's that, you know. Um, so it's the you know it's the book that I wish I had read, I had wanted to read, you know, like um, yeah. before and, and figuring it out for my for myself. The other aspect of it is that. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's just truly fascinating the different perspectives out there on this, um, and um, being honest to that and trying to be balanced. Now, I think we all bring our own biases towards things, so you know, it's really difficult to fully separate yourself from that. And what I hope I did is, you know, made very clear that in the first few chapters, you know, they're fairly bias-free. Um, mm. And then in the economics chapter, because they, it's so political as well, it's sort of well, these are the directions of travel and what would probably work out well. Um, you know, it's very hard to separate your own bias from in those chapters. And I, I hope I made that very clear that, you know, we can just have an exploration. But I try to be uh, fairly fair um, mm. to, to different viewpoints on it, to, for example, between the market and, and between state action, uh, which is, a, you know, a really big one, obviously, politically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Yeah, so that's the real driver, you know, and and the, and the real driver trying to figure this out for myself, and and also to, to for other people because I know that you know if I'm struggling with 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 processing something, then you know other people might be must be struggling with it too. And a lot of the conversations, you know, you know, as the as the introduction goes through, uh, I like that, and I just felt that there was a real need both for myself to to go through this, and probably it would be very helpful for others too. Yeah, absolutely. What I like what you just said about. Um if you're experiencing something, it's probably true for a lot of people. It's kind of a, a Copernican principle, right? That you're saying, well, I'm probably not that special. So if I'm, <laughs> if I'm having experience, <laughs> yeah, probably lots of other people. Are I always used to think experience. that at university about asking questions, although it's scary to put your hand up in front of 200 people in a lecture theater. If you're thinking it, probably someone else is as well. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why, I, that's why I always tell students, I say there's no such thing as a stupid question, you know, it, you know, about this, uh, about the course and uh, to try and encourage uh, people to feel comfortable to ask these questions. And so that's the sort of also the sort of thing I was trying to bring to the book is a comfortable, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe uncomfortable information, but a comfortable delivery of that information. Right. So yeah, I can I can totally see. I'm now picturing this pairing of, um, well, I'm probably not that special, so whatever I'm experiencing is probably being experienced by other people. And also, what kind of book do I want to read, or what kind of book would I have wanted to read? Like having those two things together. You can actually do a lot of creative stuff like that. I've heard um, I've heard musicians on on various podcasts say similar things about like, well, I just write the music that I want to hear, and then I put it out there, and it turns out that yeah, you know, if I like it, there's going to be somebody else that likes it out there yeah, in, in the I, world. Maybe one one other thing on that, you know, I, I um on the on the uh, pairing is that you know I think you know there's a lot of books out there that use the same data and come to very different conclusions you know and so I, I think that's really interesting as well and I almost think like bookshops will start offering uh, pairings of books you know so, <laughs> this wow. wine goes with this cheese and no, yeah. no this, <laughs> this book goes with this other book <laughs> it's going to go together like so for example it's a plant-based alternative yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's there's uh, so there's there's two really good um uh, there's two really good books on, say, for example, geoengineering. And there are arguments mm-hmm. that we shouldn't even be talking about this, but, you know, if you are going to read some books on this, uh, I really enjoyed uh, Oliver Morton's uh, the, the Earth Remade and um, Clive Hamilton's uh, The Earth Masters, I think it was called. Anyway, two very different books with very, very different perspectives. Uh, both excellent, you know, and I think we should be doing more of that. And I can imagine, you know, you're in a bookshop and you're going, well, sir, you know, this. <laughs> <laughs> if you like this... <laughs> 
you're interested in doing oh well these are the two books with two very different perspectives yeah, see what you think i was just about to say yeah one of the things i like about that is in that picture in this vision um maybe one is a little bit less likely to just pick the one book that you kind of want to read anyway, as in like, which perspective do you kind of innately want to have for whatever mm. reason <laughs> that mm. might be the book you're a little bit more biased towards, towards picking mm. and reading. But yeah, if you were offered this pairing, like, well, here's, here's the full perspective that you kind of need to keep in your head. It's both of these perspectives. Yeah. Maybe that kind of curation. I mean, I don't know if it would take the form of a literal you know, person in a, in a bookstore or whatever, but you could imagine that kind of curation, of like here's here's everything you need to keep in, in mind, without without um, j- journalism fell into this trap, right? The false the false mm-hmm. balance, false equivalence mm-hmm. kind of trap where people got very used to and expected the like two sides to every story sort of situation. So o- overall, there became this perception that if you're offering two very different perspectives, you're somehow offering the the truth or like a good balance when mm. sometimes those two perspectives uh, one is grounded in reality and the other is not <laughs> grounded or they're both in equally also. extreme <laughs> or they're both yeah. equally extreme yeah that's yeah, that's yeah, right yeah. and i think this only works for yeah this works for sort of um you know solidly scientific books you know and um yeah yeah absolutely i absolutely agree on that uh, you don't you do you, you don't want to be uh pairing the wrong things there or pairing pairing things that are just not the same quality and right because that that can give the illusion or appearance that you're offering a balance when maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you're really really not maybe you're mm-hmm. offering one scientific book <laughs> uh, you, you don't want to pair one science book with well here's what some you know let's just say a random podcaster thought about this mm-hmm. issue, despite having no grounding in, in the subject whatsoever. Yeah. 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 Good. Um, I was sorry, wondering I'm... if, um, I mean, you've, you've done, you said you've done a lot of teaching in, in the course of your career and you've been curating and collating all of this information over the last decade. How much did you find there to be similarities between kind of creating educational content for students and pupils and then writing a a popular science book you do a sort of similar sort of thing for a different audience i mean you're always thinking about your audience you know and you're also thinking about it has to be entertained you know education is didactic in a sense you know but you also you're also trying to teach students how to how to learn and how to assess information too you know that's not so possible in a book um but you're thinking about your audience all the time when you're doing it and you're making those decisions consciously about what you're including and excluding all the time. Um, at least being reflective of it. You know, you can still make mistakes, you know, and, you know, other interpretations are available, of course. You know, they always are. You know, like you could have somebody, somebody said, uh, yeah, you only mentioned uh, hydrogen a handful of times. You know, why didn't you go into a big section on hydrogen? And I said, well, mm. when, I, when 70% of the problem is is this, and I wanted to explain that really well, is electrification and, um, and wind and solar and mm. some of the latter technology you know so that was my filtering mechanism for for the reader in the same way that i've sort of try and uh, collate and curate information for students in the mm. in a simple sort of way you know what what are uh what are the big areas that we know well and that we know where the solutions are and what are the other areas which are just sort of more up in the air at the moment and how do they fit in in a, in a bigger systems picture because that's the other thing is like we can start to trace and have an imagine Im, Im, sort of an image in our heads of how the system looks by mm-hmm. explaining lots of the sort of the things that we definitely know 
you know, um, like I mentioned about the land use, for example, you know, renewables are also going to take up a bit more land, you know, so um, how does the land use from agriculture spill over to the land use in, in, in energy systems, you know, and for a lot of like technologies that you could say, oh, well, why didn't he talk about vertical farms, for example, like vertical farms is another interesting one, you know, yeah, it's an interesting technology. Um, we haven't done it very much around the world yet. There's a, there's a handful of examples. We don't ha- really have the information on it yet. And if we... Could you say a bit more about what that is? Well, vertical farms. So yeah. Um, yeah, so this is where you would grow um, food indoors vertically on many floors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would automate things. You'd very heavily control. Like, so the benefit is, is that uh, you can really um, control the um, inputs into the system so you can really control the energy sort of even to the photons that you're feeding to the plants so you know you're, you're just doing the exact right photons that the plants are going to be needing for <laughs> the photosynthesis and you're not wasting uh, energy on all the, all the other photons in, in a broad spectrum right um, you can control all of the environment control all of the nutrients all these sorts of things you can even start producing plants that would thrive in this example in this environment but um you know that's that sounds good that's probably more resistant and 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 resilient to climate changes and maybe use less land um but then you need to look at the embodied materials you know you use concrete to build the building you've got all the machinery and the automation uh you've got some of the social impacts that we talked about before but you've also got the energy inputs the energy inputs are quite high because you know if you're growing in a field you get that light for free even if it's really inefficient you get it for free Mm -hmm. so then you have to start thinking well how much space would i need for um solar panels and how would that compare to the anyway a lot of these questions are very much up in the air still um they would require a total system shift um and they would require scaling quite fast um and so these are options so that's that's the sort of example of the curation that you make is like well okay if the biggest impacts are in uh, diets and reducing waste and then there's a smaller impact in then I'm going to focus more time on the diets and waste. And still, I still might mention these other technologies like, you know, um, automated farming and things like this. But, you know, I'll spend less time on it because we know what, these are the areas where we need to spend the most focus. And these are the, uh, this is the information that's useful to understand whether those things are actually going to change. All right. So I wanted to, if you don't mind, we usually talk about kind of you know, pathways into, you know, science and into, you know, in your case, writing writing a book. Unless there's more you wanted to talk about about the book, Ella, is there another bit you had? There? I think that's a nice, uh, nice way to transition into that. Yeah. So where uh, where did you where did you grow up? Oh, uh, I was in uh, grew up in the middle of uh, England, so yeah. in uh, near Northampton. Okay. Yeah, not too far away from where I am. I'm in, in Cambridge, UK. So ah, right. Yeah. 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 yeah it's yeah. pretty pretty re- relatively close. If you have a car, it's very close. If you're trying to use the bus and train system, uh-huh. it's like four hours away. <laughs> <laughs> Birmingham's fine. Cambridge will take you twice as long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah. So what? Um, what does that look like? Was it kind of a small, small town, small village kind yeah, of? Yeah. It was and... a sort of. Uh, it was a town that thought it was a village. <laughs> it was uh, yeah. a yeah, sort of middle size, about uh, four thousand, five thousand people. Um, you know, big enough to have a centre and all these sorts of different things, but not really sort of uh, big enough to be a proper proper town, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were on the um, the main li- uh, train line from Euston to um, Birmingham, so it was quite nice in terms of you could walk down there and get the train and, and sort of be uh, in different cities up up mm-hmm. in the Midlands or down to London pretty quickly. Did you get to do that a bit, a bit kind of growing yeah. up here and there? Yeah, yeah, I wasn't, I, perhaps not as much as I should have done due to the sort of the prices back then, but uh, they're still, uh, um, but, the, but back then you, you still, back then you could get some good deals on the, going down to London, for example. 
Um, but yeah, I used to make used to make good use of that. Big family, small family. Um, yeah. One uh, small family, one sister, two two parents, both uh, both teachers. <laughs> so okay. I went into the I went into the family uh, the family game. Um, they are they were um, secondary school teachers um, and a primary school teacher. Uh, different various various different times. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and they were sort of head teachers uh, became head teachers uh, down the road. Um, so they so I saw them working very very hard. I saw them having such passion for the communities that they served as well. Like in those, I mean, it's such a they never thought of it this way, but certainly as a kid, I always looked up to it. I was like, "This is amazing." I used to go to the schools and see the see the environment there and and how welcoming and how um, you know open they were and and how friendly they were. And I think maybe coming even back to the book and you know the the happiness of societies. I think what scares me the most is the sort of slow degradation of the trust of students in other students mm. in the in the U.S. especially, in the um, international education assessments called Pris- uh, PRISMA, I think it's called, out of the 28 um, to- you know, high-income nations, the U.K. and the U.S. always rate uh, last and second last uh, on questions when they ask students, do you trust uh, the environment in which you're learning? Do you trust your other students? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not, I love that question because it's not really a statement of absolute truth. It's just what are people's you know, you, well, what, what's your um, interpretation of that? You know, how, what, how do you feel? Do you feel secure and comfortable? Um, anyway, so when I was at hmm. school with the folks like that, I was just always like, wow, it's so comfortable. And so, you know, the community is so good and strong. And, you know, and I, unfortunately, in the last decades, the UK is doing worse on that question. Yeah, I mean, that, that actually does connect nicely with, what, with, with the book and everything we've been talking about for the past hour, because... You know, lately I've been kind of coming around to the idea, and this is something Catherine Hayhoe talks about in her, her book, Saving Us, as well, is that everything starts with relationships, with like specific relationships between specific people and those kind of bonds, shared mm-hmm. values, you know, things that you you and your fellow people care about. And, you know, if you're in a school, in a village, hopefully that does give you some common basis you can start from of like, well, we mm-hmm. do care about how things are in our village, right? And how things are in our classroom, um, and that you can kind of scale up in some sense from from there. I mean, easier said than done when you're talking about scaling up to the the, the scale of the whole planet. But yeah, yeah if, if you don't have that even on a local scale, then you don't even have like a good map for what would yeah. it look like if two countries cooperated? What would it look like if, you know, two enormous, um, you know, kind of financial systems cooperated? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's so... Yeah, and if students aren't experiencing that in school, you know, they're not experiencing what the benefit of that. And, oh, and it's the, it's the PISA guidelines, not PRISMA, it's PISA guidelines. Um, mm. Or not guidelines, PISA tests, but um, PISA rankings. But um, yeah, if they're not experiencing that at school, then they're going to go out into the community not having experienced that either. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's, that, that's really one of the most worrying trends in my mind. Yeah, you can only become what um, you see around you. It's like having role models that you can relate to on TV or in, you know, the public eye. And it's the same sort of thing. It's if you don't have that vision supplied to you as a young person, you can't imagine yourself in that Mm. situation as you Mm. go through life. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What do you think is going on there? That's, that's interesting. Like why, why do they feel less safe? Why do they feel less trusting, less connected? I wonder what's kind of driving that culturally. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not. So some of the atomization, perhaps. I mean, when you look at the sort of um, 
statistics on this, there is more atomization, you know, and, and people have sort of even withdrawn into sort of uh, their own bubbles, um, uh, especially you know, even more so nowadays with the amount of media out there, you know, you, you don't have like s several tens of million people watching, uh, you know, the same programs all the time, maybe every now and then a sports event or something like this. But um, you don't have that common sense of uh, a, a, a sort of a community or at least a into integration and, and, and reaction to one another. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, it's hard to put a finger on this. I mean, that there are those who will say that this is sort of the, um, this is partly due to the economics, you know, neoliberalization, atomization, uh, moving people's desires into different, you know, encouraging the desires for consumption and personal consumption and individualism. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm qualified to really talk on that, but, you know, that, that's certainly some of the sort of, some of the critiques out there. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. We don't want to fall into the trap of uh, pretending like we're experts in a field that we're, we're not. And yeah. this is an area where we, we really do need the help of social scientists to mm. study and understand things like culture and what, how do you get a coherent group of people together and what does that actually look like? What are some of the behaviors and practices there and what has changed in recent decades to maybe erode some of that in some ways? So that would be a good one. So that would be a good one to, um, have some sort of measurement for as well and to try and understand over time how that's developing as a, as a, if you're going to sort of move away from gdp as a measurement of, uh, of, of social health um which a lot of people equate it with i mean it should never be that way and of course all the experts don't do it that way and i think even some of the public realize that this is not the case but unfortunately it's still the case that you know the first thing that uh, a prime minister gets up you saw it the other day with uh, boris johnson ah growth is the fastest da, 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 da. you know mm. that, was the, that was the headline figure about how well we're doing um yeah. so you know broadening that out and measuring things like atomization and, and community and, and things like that in, in, in networks um, would be important. So is atomization just, does that just refer to the process by which people sort of become more um, individual and less focused on a kind of sense of community and they, they have their own specific interest that maybe they don't share that much with the people around them? Is that the sort of process that atomization yeah. refers to? It's a, as I understand it, it's a, it's a narrowing of the social circle around you, the re reduction of those links around uh, in society. Um, I mean, you, you can quite happily see it if you think, um, you know, you're living in a house, you, you would define your environment, uh, then you get to your car, which is your environment. You go to work mm -hmm. and then you perhaps go to a, your office or a cubicle, you define your environment. Uh, and you, at no point are you ever sort of interacting outside that necessarily environment. Um, and that, that's sort of, you know, I live in the Netherlands and in the Netherlands, you know, I think even just being on bikes and, 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 and having that sort of public transport makes for, for an easier job of like having those spontaneous interactions that you, you may not get uh, otherwise. Um, certainly in the Netherlands, you know, there's the, there's the streets, what's the street, what's and I'm sure there's lots of like, examples of that in, in the UK, but at least my experience was you didn't know people as well. You know, mm. you didn't know people's uh, background or get into conversations on the street as much as you do in the Netherlands. It, you know, it's, it's something that they sort of is a national pride that they take their happiness in the little interactions in the day. And mm. it took us a while to understand that because we, we, we quite like just doing our thing, you know, like, <laughs> so we're probably the worst example of the atomized uh, people, but uh, mm. you know, we, we got into this sort of idea of like, yeah, this is where they derive all their happiness from. We understand. <laughs> Why they want to stop us on the street all the time and talk to us <laughs> and yeah yeah you get to enjoy it yourself yeah that's right not not to overgeneralize but yeah there is something to the perceived difference between like the u.s and the uk in terms of you know do you talk to strangers or not mm -hmm. um so as a small example of this like 
not not lately i haven't really been on the tube very much during the pandemic obviously but like when i'm in london on the underground if i hear another north american accent i'll sometimes be like all right i'll i'll say hi i'll I'll chat to them for a second and see how that goes because mm-hmm. chances are you know they're probably from a similar ish cultural background and probably don't mind a random chat every now and then whereas mm-hmm. you know your average uk person maybe they're not quite as into that maybe they're mm-hmm. just not not necessarily they don't necessarily want to be you know <laughs> approached on the do they want to do their own thing yeah, yeah. i'm overgeneralizing a little bit but yeah there is something to that statistically yeah. on average i think as a diehard londoner i feel like i must defend my corner <laughs> <laughs> little, 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 no no I yeah think, I think a lot of the, I, I, I get this as well, my partner's Northern and we'll talk to anyone on the bus. Mm. Um, and we have this, I think for for me as a Londoner, it's definitely a protective measure because you mm. physically cannot say hello to every single person in the tube no. carriage. You cannot no. say hello to everyone you pass <laughs> on the street because no. you'd spend your entire day doing it. You'd never get mm-hmm. anything done. And I think it's this kind of, <laughs> I don't know, uh, protective uh, coat we all wear uh, 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 as Londoners, especially yeah. you know on the tube. But you have those breakthrough moments where someone does something really funny, and the entire tube carriage will be like, "That is good." <laughs> 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 or you know those unifying moments. I think, yeah. I, I, I remember. I, I don't. I don't know whether you've seen this uh, before. I don't know whether this is a common thing, but I, I remember one time when the doors, you know, they come in like this, and there was this oh, yeah. old guy. And the bald guy, the bald guy, had his head there, and it came in and it squeaked on the top of him. <laughs> and, and, and as this was happening, he was laughing at everybody and smiling in the entire carriage. Uh, that. <laughs> that's amazing. <brilliant. laughs> uh, that's excellent. Um, yeah. So after um, growing up in the the, you said it was a village that thought it was a town, or a town that thought it was a village. Other way, other mm-hmm. way around, I think is what you said. It was um, a, it was a mixed uh, a mixed <laughs> a bit a bit of both. Yeah. So. What happened after that? Did, were you interested in science topics? So, what what sort of topics did you find yourself gravitating towards in kind of yeah. secondary um, school? So, I, I was uh, I found myself uh, finding um, science actually quite tr- tricky. Um, mm. You know, um, and part of the reasons why I kept choosing it was because I really wanted to know what it was about. <laughs> the other stuff, uh, you know, um, history and English and things, I, I I used to enjoy, but I I didn't see. Um, that I wanted to learn as much as in science that I found quite difficult. Mm. So actually I kept choosing physics and kept choosing uh, maths and uh, advanced maths. And, uh, and then eventually I went to university to do physics to try and actually get to the bottom of it, essentially. Mm. I felt so confused at, um, at high school. I was like, I really feel a need to get to the bottom of this, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I can relate so to that. Yeah, I was not. I can relate to that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm the same. I'm not a I'm not like a prodigy supernatural science and yeah, math person. I did the same thing. I'm like this. <laughs> I kind of felt like it sounds like what you're saying is is similar to what I experienced. Is I kind of felt like I I could probably learn about history later by reading. I could mm. probably learn about economics later by reading. But I felt like if I don't intensely study science and math now, it's never happening. So I better take this opportunity and do it right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's exactly the same way. That's exactly, that's what exactly the same way I thought about things uh, too. And uh, you know, I, I found it hard. You know, I found the physics, uh, physics degree difficult and, um, but uh, you know, kept at it to try and understand some of it. And um, yeah. And so I really enjoyed it in the end. And so that was at Sheffield university. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, after that, um, I couldn't, I mean, there was a sort of a phase where I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And part of my master's, I worked on the William Herschel telescope in La Palma. So I did mm-hmm. physics and astronomy. Um, yeah. 
and I really enjoyed the I really enjoyed um, the uh, being up in the mountain and being outside, and um, I um, also worked on an um, adaptive optics suite. So this is a uh, idea where you have a you've got your big primary mirror, which is like the length of several people, and it's 4.5 on the William Herschel telescope. And then your secondary mirror, which you bounce uh, off, and then you bounce it into a, a um, adaptive mirror. And this adaptive mirror um, attempts to take out the sparkling of the stars, essentially. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as the light comes, the, the famous thing is a lot of... De-glitterizer. de And the idea of this was that, you know, yeah, this light has been traveling for maybe, I don't know, long, long, long time, some of it, millions of years, some of it. Um, and at the very last minute, it's all screwed up by coming through the atmosphere. You know, the uh, the, yeah, the, the last 0.101 seconds is it then has all stuffed up for the astronomers. That's why the space, uh, you know, telescopes are so amazing and the James Webb Sabellus are yeah, so exciting. Um, and so I was working on these um, these adaptive optic mirrors, which would have these little uh, segments which would move very, very quickly to counteract the uh, sparkling of the lights. Um, in fact, if you take it even further, you get laser guide stars. So what you do is you uh, you send up a laser, uh, and then you receive the light that's uh, fluorescing in the atmosphere from that laser, mm. and then correct on that, and then that corrects all the air around the um, star that you're trying to observe. Wow. Um, in some of the telescopes, they have multiple guide stars. So um, in the very large telescopes in, in, in Chile, they have five lasers that they send up on some of these telescopes all the way around the object you're trying to uh, observe. So that you can try and cancel it really well, the atmosphere, using these really fast mirrors. Um, anyway, just thought that was so super cool. and yeah. uh, So uh, technical and precise. Well, it, you know, what's amazing about that is that, yeah, it was, I was like wandering around in awe. Of this thing that was giving the first um, the first um, sort of show around the, the, the facility, and I said, "This is really just this is just amazing. I can't believe it, it works this fast. You know these piezoelectric sort of mirror segments." Yeah. I said, "Oh yeah, yeah. You know you know where we got this from?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Well, this is like uh, this is from the military. They just gave it to us. It's like <laughs> it's so well, it's so old to them. It's obsolete." <laughs> wow! Wow! <laughs> he said, oh, the American military just so we bought it off. They gave, give it to them all. They bought them off them for some small amount and. Uh, yeah. So we've just put it in here. So I was like, okay, wow, you know. And what do they it. have? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes you wonder. I'm just wondering about that now, yeah. <laughs> what solutions do they have just lying yeah. around in a warehouse somewhere? In their back pocket, yeah. Well, certainly yeah. it's such a such a big, I mean, in the U.S., obviously such a big procurer, procurer of, um, uh, of equipment. I mean, they can make a huge impact just themselves if they decided to go um, and really sort of commit to making all sort of bases and things renewables-based. Um, they could really drive the industry if they really wanted to. Um, you know, I don't see so much of that at the moment, but, you know, um, hopefully, hopefully we can see that if it, if, if it's going to continue in the, in the way it is. Yeah, I don't want to speak too much about this because I'm not an expert, but I seem to remember you know reading th- this idea that people in the military are thinking about this even in kind of an operational context of like, yeah. well, if we're going to have a base in the middle of a desert, do we really want to have to keep bringing it, you know, gas, <laughs> you know, petrol? Do we want to have to keep that supply line open? and have to constantly bring in fossil fuels or do we want to set up some solar panels or, you know, some kind of renewable uh, mm-hmm. setup there so that it can be a little bit more self-sufficient. 
And there's an obvious advantage, I think, you know, to just yeah. having solar panels or something where you don't need that constant mm-hmm. supply line. You'll still need to bring in food and stuff, but that that seems like it would cut down on the amount of stuff you have to get to that base to keep it active. Totally. Um, yeah. More, yeah. More resilient, you would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. 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 You think so. So that that's uh, what was the shift like after astronomy? I, I did astronomy too, by the way. It was a different, I did like astrophysics. Uh, I did uh, numerical simulations of dark matter galaxy oh, wow. dark, dark matter halos and uh Ooh. galaxies and stuff and that that was fun fun to do but at some point i had had a shift and i was kind of curious about you know what did your transition look like from uh astronomy and physics to where you're where you're at now what, can you take us through that a little bit yeah yeah sure i mean so i when i uh, finished the uh, degree in uh, physics and astronomy i my my professor always used to say and um, you know astronomy is really interesting but it doesn't affect the price of fish you know, and I just, I was like, well, yeah, you know, he said, it. you know, ultimately, you know, it was, and I, I wanted to make a, yeah, I wanted to make a bit a difference. I, I wanted to look at um, renewable energy uh, and I thought, well, what can I apply this to? Uh, and if you look at sort of atmospheric physics and you look at, um, you know, turbulence, uh, which is, you know, a lot of what you're thinking about when you're trying to cancel out these, uh, sp- the sparkling of the scintillation of the stars, they call it, or sparkling of the stars. Um, you're thinking, yeah, you're thinking atmospheric movement and turbulence in the boundary layer uh, and you know, above, but a lot in the boundary layer. Uh, and so I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd love to work on wind energy because wind mm-hmm. energy, you, know, you really need to know what's happening to the turbulence. You really need to know uh, these models. Um, and so I worked on remote sensing of wind speed in complex terrain. So similar to, you know, the complex terrain of being on a mountain for a, 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 um, a telescope, being on complex, complex terrain, which is obviously, a, you know, a region where you, you, you've often got very high wind speeds. And it's very difficult to know what wind speeds you're going to be exposed to without having masts. But then if you put a mast down in complex terrain, then you've got your guy lines going off down onto the mountain. It's very difficult and very expensive to put on masts. You know, it could cost you $120,000 uh, to put up a mast in uh, mm. complex terrain. Uh, so if you can use remote sensing where you park something on the ground and you pulse that energy into the atmosphere and you get the reflections, you can figure out the uh, wind speeds indirectly. So I used what's called uh, SODAR and LIDAR. Uh, so this was using uh, pulses of sound into the atmosphere. Uh, and then you get a Doppler shift. And if you do that in three directions, you can solve the simultaneous equations and figure out the uh, wind direction and wind speed. And you can do the same with light. Um, so you can use, you can pulse light into the atmosphere and it'll shine off the aerosols. Um, you know, very quiet uh, reflections, uh, very low uh, signal to noise. So you need to uh, take multiple measurements over like 10 minutes. So it has its downsides. I mean, things are changing fast, but it has its downsides. And so by doing that, you can actually figure out for a wind farm, where for a wind company, uh, where the best place to put the wind turbines are along, along say, a ridge. Um, and to avoid also the turbulence for the mm. wind turbines themselves. That was your PhD topic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Is that like an engine? Was that an engineering department or? Uh, it was a physics department. Physics because department. we were working with the, you know, we were working with the sound. So it was like sound propagation in the atmosphere. Uh, so it was still sort of physics uh, department, but yeah, had a lot of crossovers with engineering. And mm. one of my external examiners was, uh, you know, the from the engineering uh, school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting, and uh, it's seeing how. That, that's such a an, kind of unexpected through line. How about, uh, I mean, I know there's going to be lots more in, in the middle there, and I'm happy to talk about any, any of that that you want to talk about. And where did the where did the book idea start, and how did you decide to get into writing this kind of um, more oh, broad um, outreach sort of work? 
Yeah, so, um, well, for um, a while there, I uh, left uh, uh, the PhD and I worked in um, policy uh, formation for, um, I worked at the Royal Society of New Zealand, mm. and I was working on uh, providing policy to government about uh, environmental um, matters and, other, and lots of other things. And I just really enjoyed uh, the sort of mix of science and writing and policy. I, I really, really enjoyed um, how that worked. Um, and then uh, afterwards sort of uh, thought about, you know, what I wanted to do next. And um, I discovered uh, this uh, sort of, um, I discovered uh, this concept of sort of liberal arts and sciences uh, and applied for a job in the Netherlands in liberal arts and sciences, which is very broad, uh, allowed mm. me to sort of interact with lots of people from many different disciplines and um, and, and work on that. And so in, in recent years, uh, industrial working as an industrial ecologist, you know, you start to see these uh, these these sort of similarities. So I work with input-output models, which are these really big um, economic models. They're big matrices of how the world supplies everything it does to fulfil the consumption. So you have. Mm. So you have maybe 96 million data points, um, all from um, nationally reported data, uh, you know, from the systems of national accounting, as I mentioned before, and other, and other data, things like uh, Comtrade, which is a huge trade database. And what you can do with that is you can look at how things are grown or produced all the way from the producer through to the manufacturer, through to the assembler, through to everything, and through to the consumer. So you can do what's called consumption-based accounting. So you may, you know, you guys probably know consumption-based accounting pretty well. Like you, you, you know, the computers that we're recording this on, all of the different things in that has come from different regions. Hmm. Uh, and to be able to calculate how much emissions are actually embedded in that, you don't want to just look at the emissions of the nation you're in. You want to see what's hmm. actually in the, in the computer. And it, you know, if you look at that, you have to increase. You know, for the UK, for example, which is a largely services centered economy, uh, you have to increase the impacts, you know, 50% to 100% uh, to, to actually sort of, uh, uh, well, it depends on the year you're looking at and anyway. Um, so, um, uh, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> I forgot where I was at. Well, we're just talking about um, like how you got into to writing and I'm, I'm starting to get a sense of it because you're, you're giving us this picture of getting into policy and then finding a way into this liberal arts and sciences department so that, um, you're kind of expanding your scope as time goes on. You're saying, well, let me just increase the uh, the scope of the problem that I'm trying to take into my brain, which is impressive because yeah. yeah. I'm finding it quite challenging, I think, to continue uh, opening my scope in a meaningful way. I can read articles, but you know, to really kind of grok it and really get my head around it is, is yeah. a, that's, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's 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 sort of curiosity uh, driven in those different areas that you think are, are the ones you want to learn about at the time, mm. and um, you know, and then so the idea from the book was, you know, I always knew that I I enjoyed the writing, especially for the uh, policy, trying to communicate the importance of um, yeah of scientific information to policymakers. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was at the Royal Society of New Zealand, we actually, and not just scientific policy, um, so at the Royal Society, for example, I, w I worked on um, a uh, call for a national languages policy. And I was like, you know, then I had to very much think about who is the audience, you know, and what would they need to know and how would they, how would they digest this? And um, so I worked, I, I worked with all the fellows from the Royal Society of New Zealand on sort of language information. And I tried to package it in a way which would really appeal to the government of the day. Hmm. So it was very much that sort of experience. And I really enjoyed doing that. And I always knew that I wanted to do that uh, for the public too. Um, right. 
And uh, later on, I think I was just on my bike listening to another audio book. And I was just, you know, I think I went from, I went from um, uh, Enlightenment Now, Stephen Pinker's, to uh, This Changes Everything. And I was just like, you know, this is wild, you know, let's dig into this. What, what, mm. what is true in, you know, the, in these two interpretations uh, of the world? Uh, and could I present you know, this in a sort of, um, in the same book so that people can see, uh, yeah, as I say, this pessimism and hope. So how long has it been in the making, this book? Um, it was relatively quick. So I, it was probably about a year and a half from uh, okay. start to finish. Yeah. Hard work. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> Devoted it, yourself to it, I'm sure. To, to be honest, I don't, I hope it doesn't come across in the book, but to be honest, it, you know, easily the hardest, one of the worst things <laughs> <laughs> It was so, so stressful, uh, so painful. And um, the other thing that I wanted to do in the book was to really um, commit to the emotions of it. So, you know, we're talking about earlier where we could be reading um, scientific articles and it could be a bit depressing. Well, often that's our own interpretation coming into the situation because the scientific writing is quite removed of of emotion. Mm -hmm. It's quite austere. Um, And to some extent, you can protect yourself by just reading it scientifically. And then our own emotion comes in when we start to interpret it and go, well, what does this mean? Well, within the book, I wanted to obviously write in a popular science way, which meant communicating uh, more emotionally and actually trying to engage with that emotionally myself. Mm. And that was really difficult um, because I think we have these emotional back and forth when you're trying to put it on the page and trying to think about all the different ways you can, all the different ways of, of the impacts, for example, of climate. It was really hard. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the, the writing of the book itself was quite difficult. And, and also the, the, that structure actually is quite difficult to, to follow. Yeah. What do mm. I put in hope? What do I put in the pessimism? How do I you know, split these things. It was actually, writing it that way was probably one of the hardest um, ways I, I could have chosen to write it. <laughs> so. What did you do to keep yourself grounded or emotionally healthy? You know, what were some of the, the things you tried to do to, to to help you ride that line in a way that didn't just leave you leveled? <laughs> oh, I just let myself get leveled. <laughs> just let yourself get leveled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I just, I just decided, oh, no, this is a, um, I want to do this so much that I'll just uh, keep getting myself uh, pounded by the emotions and things. I mean, I, um, yeah, you know, I like it, like a lot of people, you know, you go towards uh, uh, exercise and uh, you try to narrow down the areas of your life that don't need choices because it becomes so hard to make choices when you're making choices all day on what, mm. how to put things, what to include, what not to include. The creativity of that, I just found that narrowing the choices became easier. So the diet became very uh, monotone. Mm. Um, and, Beans on uh, toast. This is from the from the first chapter when I was uh, talking about how to predict what I'd what I'd be eating next. Yeah, that's that was why because I was eating a lot of that. Um, But um, but yeah, so that's that's one of the ways in which the COVID and 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 my uh, partner's an author. Uh, She's a novelist. And uh, talking with her about that process was very useful because it's a different world to what scientists are used to. Yeah, does did your partner find your experience to be kind of similar to what she'd experienced? Was it uh yeah, like what what yeah. was what were the parallels and It's a good it's a good question. Um we so we understand we understand each other's worlds a little bit you know i understand that you know going purely creative is just so hard i i i understand it in a new way now that i never really think i 
fully internalized. I always thought, oh, it's really difficult. Um, but then, then when I was writing the book in the creative part, I was like, oh God, you know, this is, this is something else. Um, and uh, so I, now I understand that a little bit. And I, I think in terms of what she thought, um, yeah, I think she probably just thought, she thought it was tough. And, and also the, the, the deadline. I mean, it was just a very quick uh, writing of the book. The, 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 the publishers wanted mm. to publish it quite quickly. Um, and so it was, it was under a lot of stress. And she said, you know, that that's not a great way to be working. Uh, Mm. So how does that how does that work? You have an idea for a book, or you write up a, a sample, and then you get a publisher to agree. The yeah, here you should do this project. I know sometimes there's an, an advance involved where they say, "Well, here's your payment for the book." Now we expect it by you know such and such date. Do you mind talking about that sort of thing, or just for, yeah. out of curiosity? So, so um, it's it's a different world uh, in, depending on what sort of genre you're writing into. So. Um, mm. Uh, uh, fiction has a different process to nonfiction, and uh, different areas of nonfiction can sometimes have different attitudes as well. Um, so, no, the what what you typically do with nonfiction is you write a book proposal, uh, which has the full outline of the book and has a sample chapter. Uh, it also discusses some of the other books out there and mm. what's what's out there at the time, and you know uh, what they're like, and and what you're bringing to the situation that other books aren't. You know, how are you adding to the situation? Are you what is the value of it? Um, right. And at the time, you know, when you know when we're looking for publishers, um, you know. The, the response often was we really love we love the writing we love the idea um, climate doesn't sell I mean mm. it was just wild you know I mean this was at the time I think things have changed now but like you know this was this was um, just before Uninhabitable Earth came out so either you were a really big name and you could just you could you could write a climate book based on that so I think you know uh, this changes everything which I think is a, you know a really great book um, you, you know Naomi Klein already had a massive platform. And so she could do that. Um, but there wasn't much space for, you know, climate scientists to come out with books that were going to be easily picked up. You know, you saw university presses some, right, sometimes writing them, mm-hmm. but journalists sometimes writing them. Um, but the attitude by the publishers was always, yeah, it doesn't sell. We're not, we're not, we're not going to get into this. I think mm-hmm. Uninhabitable Earth changed that quite a bit. I, I think when that came out, and I don't know whether you've read it, but the um, response to that and how popular that was uh, really did change um, you know how publishers saw saw it. Um, so I, I think, yeah, um, I, I think it's a different world now. But certainly back then, that was the that was the line. And I kind of, I, I mean, you get very sad and despondent with that. You kind of understand it. You're like, yeah, you know, people sometimes aren't looking for that on their summer holidays. <laughs> Yeah, you don't. You don't want to read a book that's difficult and challenging and upsetting. Yeah. You want to read yeah. a page turner that you can go to bed at night and not be woken up by it. You want. Yeah. To, I, I want to read always, at night and go to sleep afterwards. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's why. That's why I always told people not to uh, finish on a pessimistic chapter if they read the book in bed. You know, <laughs> make sure you've got time enough to read the the pair. You know, and you finish yeah. on the home chapter. Um, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> you know, there are some there are some green shoots, some some bright lights. Yeah. Um, so uh, no, that's the, that's the process really. And you you write this proposal, and the publishers, uh, you know, will either pick it up or, or they won't. And um, uh, and then uh, with nonfiction, um, you have a certain amount of time to write the book, to actually to write the, the, the full book, uh, not just the, the the proposal. The proposal itself is already a good proportion of the book because there's a lot mm. of thinking that you do. Um, and um, and then yeah, you get an editor and 
yeah, then you then you go you, you go on. Really, it's different. It's a different world, really, to, to academic publishing. Yeah, how do you go about approaching all the publishers and all this kind of stuff? Do you have like a literary agent or? Yeah, that's that's yeah. how it works. So you, you get an agent first, uh, and then the agent goes to the the publishers with it. Um, some people can try and go directly. It's very difficult. As I say, it's just a, such a different world. And you know, if you're a scientist and you're a, an active research scientist, you know. <laughs> I mean, doing all the. Re- I mean, there's an awful lot of stuff around publishing a book um, that is a lot of who your and... effort. Um, but that's one of the things that you know is very difficult for you to even find out. So when the book came out, for example, I spent a lot of time emailing people and uh, saying, "Yeah, you know, if you're interested, if this sounds a bit appealing, uh, I'd love to mm. send you a copy and these sorts of things." And um, that's something you can do. But you know, knowing who the publishers are and the editors who would be interested in those relationships, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. not really. I'm guessing. Tagging them on Twitter probably isn't enough. Like, hey, <laughs> I guess if you've got, I, do, I suppose if you're followed by enough people, and uh, <laughs> maybe, yeah, <laughs> tag tag them. Twitter, I find Twitter so difficult. So uh, you know, I didn't have any of that. It, it can be, yeah. It's we've talked about it here before, and maybe too much, but yeah, I think I find science Twitter can be very nice. You know, you can stay connected with with people that you've met here and there in conferences or you worked with before, and you can see what they're up to. Um, and it's kind of nice to have a bit of that camaraderie, especially in the kind of, you know, pandemic era where it's hard to even get, you know, to, to the office to have that kind of professional camaraderie. So it's nice to have a bit of that, but there's also just like a sewer just right below the surface. Mm. (laughs) If you're not careful, you can, you know, step Mm. into it. It's, it's really just humming right, right there underneath the surface. I was going to say, you can, I would keep being uh, told to, um, yeah, don't, don't, don't necessarily have to interact, you know, as much. Mm. You can just, you can put some information out there. You don't just try to deal it with like, like that. Um, Mm. Yeah, it's um, but as you can tell from the book, you know, and, and narrowing things down to those bite-sized takes, I find also. I mean, it, it, I understand that some people think that you should be able to do that. That's part of your job is to like narrow down a single take. But I don't think you can do it in in a tweet. I think you know, yeah, maybe a blog post or something or a few paragraphs. But a tweet is just you know way beyond um, uh, being able to do that uh, in a sort of in a in an easy in an easy way in a responsible yeah. way as well. Yeah. for a whole book and a whole set of issues like that yeah i think yeah. it's i mean it's hard enough to do in a twitter thread let alone yeah. <laughs> let mm. alone a single tweet yeah yeah yeah, yeah. a thread a thread can be okay in some instances threads are really good for summarizing papers i think some yeah specific yeah. scientific That's papers because yeah. you can say here's a figure here's Highlights. the take-home message here's another figure here's the take-home message <laughs> yeah. and then people can go read the full paper if, if they're interested yeah, yeah. And that's the, some, that's the, that is to some extent how, um, you know, how you also build a paper, you know, and so it's, so it's quite a nice reflection. Um, the way I t- talk to students about it is, you know, when you, th- when you think about doing some research, you know, you've got to think about, uh, you know, why bother? Well, why are you bothering doing it? Um, what have other people done? How did you go about doing it? Um, uh, you know, what did you find and why do we care and how does it fit in? And really that's quite just a natural thing of ex- exploration. And I think you could put that in a tweet pretty, pretty easily. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, some of these other things are very difficult. <laughs> For sure. And anything with nu- nuance is uh, yeah. quite tricky to get across on there. For sure. Do you mind if I ask you some questions about things you've learned along the way? Sure, yeah. yeah. What's something you've learned about science that you didn't really know before you kind of got actively involved with it? Oh, it could that's... be kind of anything, like how, in terms of how it works, um, you know, whether we're talking about um, a specific 
area of, of research or specific set of concepts or how it works kind of socially, just whatever that makes you think of you know, learning, learning something about science by the, uh, the fact that you got involved with it. Yeah. Great question. So, um, I don't know this, whether this is obvious or not, but just, just the concept of consensus and the mm. risk in the consensus not being right in a way. So if you talk to some modelers, some, uh, if you talk to some areas of mod- modeling or you, you, you read some of the papers, you might get the impression that, oh, we've avoided some of the high uh, trajectories. Uh, we're going well. You know, things are, you know, we're on, you know, going well. We're not going well, but we're, we're, we're going somewhere where we could never have imagined, you know, two mm. decades ago. You know, we thought we were going for six degrees and we're probably going for something like 2.73 degrees. Mm. Um, you know, this is, an, this is an interpretation, right? Like, if you look at Paris, for example, more like, uh, you know, 2.7 or whatever. But... Um, and more recently, lower. Um, but then you talk to the sort of cryosphere scientists, and you know this uh, well, Danny. You know, and then the panic is is palpable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, well, we're we're on the ground, and we're seeing these changes, and you're not seeing this, and this is a part of the systems problem, right? Out of sight, out of mind. Um, and while we've done a very very good job at average temperatures, you know, really this systematic underestimation of um, the large scale. Um, shifts and so it really gave me an appreciation of how useful it is to read across those different dimensions and disciplines in the same topic Um, and how science can sometimes be quite isolate siloed I mean this is I mean this is a very common point I guess about siloing but Mm. it really felt quite um Internal. I really internalized that siloing when I was reading across these different uh, these different disciplines. Um, so that that was that was definitely one thing. And um, you know, and Catherine, hey, is it Catherine? I oh, know. Sorry, Naomi Oreskes so did a mm-hmm. great paper on um, you know consensus in say the IPCC and you know these sorts of things. And you know, those are things that will help you to reflect on it. So I learned a lot about the social sciences that I may not mm-hmm. have done if I hadn't have written the book. Um, right. And it, or, or I had just relied on sort of the natural sciences or even just the industrial ecology side. Yeah, what you said about the cryosphere panic made me think of, um, I can't remember who said it. It was not not Thomas Berner, but Thomas Berner's advisor, who I can't remember, sorry. Um, but they said that uh, as a field, we're pretty good at thermodynamics. Like we can get the temperature, but we're not as good at dynamics or, you know, in this case, including the cryosphere. So uh, That's a great that, line, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, we're good at average temperatures and maybe even kind of broad regional perspectives on temperature, and maybe even precipitation. But the dynamics is is way harder. Yeah, and the ice sheet behavior is way harder. Yeah, it's an interesting point. It's um, something Ted Shepard wrote his storylines oh, yeah. paper That's on. The person. Ted yeah. Shepherd. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about, do you mind if I do another one? Another question. What have you learned about writing that you didn't know? You told us a little bit, but I'm kind of curious about what lessons you've you've learned about writing in the process. It's a good question, isn't it? Because you don't really know. I mean, I don't know whether people just think, oh, I've done it right or I've done it wrong. I don't know whether that's something. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure some confident people, uh, <laughs> they just mm-hmm. they just decide this is the right way to do it. This is the wrong way to do it. Um, for me, um, you know, you're always you're always sort of looking at that and sort of thinking about whether that's the right way or the wrong way. I think, you know, I mean, Catherine Hayhoe um, and others sort of talk about facts, you know, not being that 
that useful, you know, and actually we should just be, but I don't know. I mean, maybe there are just different people out there for different, um, different, um, uh, uh, people for different, for different uh, ways of communicating. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it seems you hit on was talking about knowing your audience, right. And speaking to your audience. Yeah. And that feels like it's, it's relevant here. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and so I tried to mix in a few stories here and there, and uh, with with it with the information, you know, with with the raw information of the digestion of what this um, this uh, this situation looks like. Uh, like. So yeah, um, that's that's one of the things I learned. I, it's really hard to sort of reflect on that actually. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to be working with for some people. So I, you know, and the students seem to be uh, finding it very useful, and uh, people get in touch every now and then. Uh, you know, and which is very uh, nice. So it seems to work for some people. Maybe maybe next time I I maybe uh, bring in more stories. The problem with the with the, this book as well is that I wanted to um, keep the chapters quite uh, concise and tight. Mm-hmm. You know. You know? I got some very good advice very early on that uh, you know you don't want a chapter to be sort of uh, uh, pushing too far far above six thousand words. You know you want mm-hmm. a you want a, a nice arc and then you know move on. Um, right, right. And so you know you don't want to make a book too long either. So there was a real you know that book could have been so much longer, um, but I really tried to you know you're right, it was longer and then you, you edited it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that th- those sorts of things I learned to uh, learn how to do a little bit um, and. Uh, yeah, <laughs> really, yeah, really. Yeah. Uh, these are these are a lot of these questions I've not really sort of um, had to answer before. So it's uh, the process type questions because yeah. the book came out during COVID, and I, so I didn't uh, go to any live events uh, uh, for book book festivals and things. Right, right. Yeah, you mentioned students. How about working with students, whether it's teaching or advising? What's something you've learned about um, that process? So we're all apt to make the same mistakes. And if you're as a teacher seeing the same mistakes in the students all the time, that can be one of two things. You either need to focus more time there uh, or you're not working, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and over time, just honing exactly what those things are. Um, a lot of the case is it's how to read research, how to interpret the world, how to, this is what I quite like about liberal arts and sciences, you know, uh, this, this critical thinking, what are my sources? Uh, how can I evaluate this with my broader knowledge? And, and why is it important to have both the broader knowledge and the content and the facts and also, you know, the knowledge of how to interpret a source because the, then I can evaluate how do I get um, a sense of scale? You know, what, what are the important things that we're talking about here? A lot of students will start talking about plastics, you know, Mm. Yeah, plastics is a bit is an issue it it is it, it but you know we also need to keep in mind the scale of the different issues you know um, uh, biodiversity loss and, and climate change and the scale of different solutions and different issues so um that's something that i think is really important for students to understand you know um and especially when it comes to energy systems a lot of students don't understand quite how much energy we use mm. you know and Book, um, I mentioned that you know every day in high-income nations, uh, we use the same equivalent amount of energy as it would take to ride the Tour de France five times. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a huge amount of energy, and you know that might come down in the future, um, and that might seem hard to believe, of course. But then we look around us, and everything has taken huge amounts of energy to produce. Um, and so, just that sense of scale is difficult to communicate when mm-hmm. it's so big, when our impacts are so big. And so what I tried to learn is how to do that better. I, when I first started off, I used to put it in terms of atomic bombs or uh, in terms of shuttles taking off. Mm. Uh, so something like 11,700 space shuttles taking off all the time, every day, all the way through the day for humanity. 
And I don't know about you, but that doesn't, I didn't quite, I mean, it's interesting, but it doesn't quite work in the same way as five Tour de France's. So it was a lot of, you know, it's a lot of that iterative thing of like, that doesn't quite work. Let's try this thing. I was glad to see the, uh, the, the kind of energy servants picture the metaphor again, right? Where you say, well, if all of my energy just came from a human, just a person providing that energy, how many people would be working for me right now? How many mm. people would be servants? I was glad to see that in your in your book because I think that is a, a nice, concise way to, to think of it in terms of understanding how much energy the average person is really using you know, every second. And I don't have the figures at the, in the front of my mind and I don't have the chapter pulled up exactly. But yeah, it's, it's quite a surprising number of people if you consider 100, 150. That's partly because our power outputs as humans, you know, we struggle to compete. You know, uh, our metabolic rate is about 80 to 100 watts. So it's about the same as an incandescent light bulb. But if we're working out, we are looking at about, you know, most of us, if we're in reasonable shape, around 150 to 200 watts. Hmm. Um, and, you know, that's not even going to get you a toaster. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you, you need 10 times as many people for like a heater, you know. Uh, yeah. So it, it, it easily starts to add up in humans uh, mm, helping you. For sure, yeah. I've, part of why I was glad to see it is, um, so when I first got, got into all this, I was teaching physics and astronomy at the undergraduate level. And I had this opportunity to teach an environmental physics course. And I ended up using this book, Energy, Environment, and Climate by Richard Wolfson, which provides a very nice overview of the way those issues are all coupled to each other. And it, it ended up being a really good undergrad textbook. And that was the first place I'd seen that kind of energy servants, mm. um, you know, way of thinking about it. And I hadn't really mm. seen it since. I'm not really sure. For me, it's so helpful. I'm not really sure why it's not kind of all yeah. over the place. Well, I think, so I, I, I don't know who came up with it first. I think it was, was it Buckminster Fuller? I don't know who it was. There was, there was, there was somebody in the uh, early 20th century that came up with it. Um, mm. And initially they called it energy slaves. And of course, that's in all sorts of issues now and like, well, back then, of course, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, not the best way to put it. And so maybe it fell out of um, favor because of that. Maybe. Um, maybe yeah. servants, I think, is a, is a better way to put it. Um, right. Yeah. Just as a just as a conceptual exercise to get your head around, like mm-hmm. how much energy we're talking about is, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it, it might it might very easily uh, touch on some of some social relevant social issues and things for mm. sure um mm. good well and kind of uh, uh we we don't have to stop but i do want to respect your time and respect ella's time as well we're about we're about at our two hour mark this has been really excellent i've really really enjoyed this chat uh, with both uh, you know you paul and ella it's uh it's been great i've really what a great way to spend um this time is there anything else that either one of you wanted to, to talk about? No, I know. I just say I have too. I mean, it's, it's very uh, wide ranging and I, and I enjoyed uh, exploring some of these uh, sort of broader topics with you and getting into some of the details because you don't always get that chance with a, you know, a 10 minute, 20 minute uh, piece. And it's nice to be able to talk a little bit about the process. So uh, no, thanks very much. It's a lovely chat. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really, really yeah. great hearing from you. I've really learned a lot, I think. And yeah, thanks, thanks for the thanks for the feedback on the book as well. It's it's useful to know it kind of uh, it kind of works. <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, your writing's very good, and the device you used is is very unique. And I think it does add something to the conversation that wasn't out there before. So I'm I'm right. glad you did it. Thanks for suffering for all of us and uh, letting yourself get flattened with what was the word levels was the word we used earlier, <laughs> yeah, so that yeah. we could all benefit from from this work. So yeah, thanks for that's that's emotional labor, right? Like you did you did that. Like you you should be uh, compensated and recognized for the emotional labor labor part of working <laughs> well, through this I mean, book thing yeah, as well. Yeah. 
you're always putting that into perspective. I mean, you know, I'm still very, yeah, obviously a very lucky person, and uh, yeah, yeah, just to put that into perspective. Of course, sure, so. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's a reasonable foot uh, footnote, uh, a note to to put in there. Yeah, but I just wanted to give you a compliment, really. So thanks, <laughs> thanks, Danny. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, have a, a great rest of your day, and uh, thanks so much again for chatting with us. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks. There you have it. Our conversation with Paul Behrens. Again, Paul Behrens is an assistant professor at Leiden University, and you can find his book, The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, Futures from the Frontiers of Climate Science. It's available, you know, wherever you get your books. You can find Paul on Twitter at Dr. Paul Behrens, spelled just like his name. Thanks very much to Ella Gilbert for co-hosting. You can find her on Twitter too, Dr. Underscore Gilbs with a B, with a, with a Z, Gilbs. Um, thanks to Sean Williams Page for editing services. And thanks to Lillian Blair for audio engineering. If you like the podcast, please do all the usual stuff, all the subscribing and liking and commenting and all of that stuff. And please do send us your suggestions for guests. We do look into those. We do consider those suggestions for questions, suggestions uh, for for anything, really, I guess. Okay, yeah, so thanks very much for listening. And uh, thanks for coming back if you're a return listener. We're doing these about one a month. That's about the rate I can sustain them and that all of us can sustain them. There's many people working on on these now. Uh, Yeah, take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.